Hi, and welcome to another episode. Today, I've got Dr. Lexi Birch. Hi, Lexi. Hi there. Pleasure to be here. Lexi is the Chief Scientist at Aveni, and also Dr. Ben Trevitt, an NLP engineer here at Aveni. Hi, Ben. Hello. Right. So today, we want to cover basically a really fast-moving field. So large language models, what's new on the scene, really just to take a bit of a temperature check on where we are. Amazon have just announced a a deal with Anthropic. Things are moving really quickly. Lexi, what's the latest in large language model land? It is really hard to keep up. Um, We can't not mention the GPT family of models. This is the, the, the one that kicked it all off. My excitement in the field was really triggered when uh, GPT-3 was rolled out a couple of years ago. But the world really woke up with ChatGPT, obviously, 10 months ago. And an enormous amount has happened since then. We've got GPT-4 that's been rolled out. GPT-3.5 was evaluated on benchmarks such as how how well the models can pass the bar exam and chat gpt 3.5 can pass in the in the 10th percentile and gpt4 can pass in the 90th percentile so that's a huge improvement in performance over a period of a few months and just coming in on that from what i understand GPT-3 was trained on well, 170 or so billion parameters. And GPT-4 was trained on 1.7 trillion parameters, a thousand times bigger uh, in effect. Is that just a, a direct link back to the size of the model, that type of increase in performance? I think it was trained on... A variety of different multimodal data, so images and text, and it was also trained to deal with much longer contexts. I mean, we have also had an upgrade in GPT 3.5, so I think that the numbering system is becoming slightly less meaningful. Uh, if the latest model is in fact GPT 3.5 and not GPT 4, and in fact that model also now has both speech and images included, so it can you know take in those modalities and actually produce um, speech as well. I think it's anthropomorphizing a little bit to say that now ChatGPT can hear and speak, but this is the kind of advertising that that we're seeing. I think size is really important. There's a balance between the amount of data that a model's seen and the number of parameters that it's seen. And when you're getting to that kind of size, actually better performance is going to come from seeing more data rather than adding more parameters. And, and and we're getting some interesting results published on smaller models very recently. What's going on there? So models of the size of ChatGPT are really exciting, but they're limited to a handful of companies that can train them and then run them due to the cost of inference and, and the engineering you need to host them on massive clusters. And smaller models are much more interesting from a kind of practical perspective for the majority of users of large language models. And we've seen smaller models with very exciting performance coming out. So in February, there was a large amount of excitement about a family of models called uh, the Llama. Llama 1 was released. And it's uh, 65 billion parameters, so it's a little bit less than half the size of ChatGPT. And these are models that you can actually run yourself. This is things that 
companies can potentially fine-tune. And and this is actually really important because these larger models, you're actually not entirely sure what's happening under the hood with the models. I do think there's going to be probably another trend, which is people understanding more how to train these things, adding more capabilities and actually better performing models coming out in the future. And so what, I mean, just drilling into that point a little bit more. So what I'm seeing at the moment when I'm out speaking to clients, you know, specifically within the financial services, the larger businesses, you know, if you think JP Morgan have got 1600 data scientists in-house, you know, the larger businesses are going down a path of building internal capability themselves. The majority of them are using foundational large language models as their base uh, and sort of building on basically on top of, you know, GPT in in most cases from, from what we see. As the tools and techniques enable good performance to be delivered from smaller models, do you see a scenario where companies are genuinely building their, their own or very unique large language models, maybe using a smaller base? a smaller foundational model but building on top of that uh more unique sort of fine-tuned large language models to their business process their data their their client needs this is certainly something that's happening already bloomberg rolled out a bloomberg gpt model you can imagine the the training of these models has a couple of distinct stages so they're basically trained to predict the next word and that's considered sort of a pre-training phase and that's the majority of the training happens in, in the pre-training where you're learning to understand language. The the subsequent kind of training that uh, large language models we've seen have been incredibly successful as, okay, we've got a, a model that can predict the next word, but it's not very good at following instructions. So you'd probably need to then uh, fine-tune the model for instructions and then potentially do reinforcement learning with human feedback, which has been the final kind of um, polishing of the models that a lot of these companies have done. Yeah. And fine-tuning, training your own models as we currently stand is still probably for the largest enterprise businesses with lots lots of resources. It's still a research Uh, problem, I would say. There isn't like a um, recipe that you can just apply where you know that it's going to improve performance. Yeah, I think what one other observation, I mean, from products we've built internally at Aveni and looking at the requirement to operate within a heavily regulated environment. So what you need to do to large language model output to ensure it's transparent enough traceable back to source and will meet this the sort of heavy scrutiny of regulators to do that to achieve those outcomes currently with gpt can be incredibly expensive especially if you want you know to use this technology at scale let's say for example over millions of customer interactions ben you've obviously spent the last few years developing your own models here at Venny. how have you found the last sort of you know 12 months or so um, with the emergence of gpt experimenting with gpt versus the models we've built uh, in house yeah i mean i guess like lexi said the rate of progress in the last 12 months has been 
ridiculous, frankly. I mean, playing around with GPT-4 earlier today and I was asking it to do some sort of task and I was just like, yeah, I think if you take a step back and realize that a year ago, none of this would have been possible, it's insane. But yeah, on the, on the subject of kind of the in-house models, it's still very difficult to train a model from scratch, I think related to the Bloomberg GPT model that's mentioned. I listened to a, a podcast from their data scientist that trained it and they mentioned they, they spent millions of dollars and they had to kind of repeat the training run multiple times because the first few times they made some minor mistake or the performance they were getting isn't really what they expected. So it's still, I guess, a lot of black magic or kind of dark arts into getting these things to do what you actually want them to do. Hallucinations are still a problem, which obviously is more of a problem in the financial sector where we obviously don't want it to hallucinate poor financial advice or anything similar. But there are techniques that people use now to kind of reduce these as much as possible. I think the main one is this retrieval augmented generation. So this is you, your language model is backed up by like a kind of source of information and it can sample from that and effectively use that to generate its answers, which helps to reduce these hallucinations. And you also get with that citation metrics. So your model can say where you got the information from and perhaps provide a link to it and gives the user a bit more trust in the, the answers that have generated. And tools and techniques of that nature are essential, right? I mean, if you're going to deploy this tech in an environment where someone can tap you on the shoulder and say, show me where that data came from, a customer could complain and you have to do a sort of root cause analysis. Uh, unless you're able to retrieve that information, just pointing at a large language model and saying it came from there <laughs> is not going to be a sufficient answer. Yeah, exactly. It also helps in the case where, say, you've you've trained your model for several months and you've trained it to say that your return policy is 14 days. And actually now you've changed your return policy and now it's 30 days. You don't want to retrain your model from scratch to update this. Uh, so using these like retrieval techniques, you can easily just change that line in its kind of data source and it will magically, well, I guess not magically, but it will provide the correct updated answer for you. I don't know if you've had chance yet, you know, it's only been a, a couple of days since OpenAI released the version of ChatGPT with text-to-speech and the sort of image recognition functionality. One thing I found listening to the ChatGPT responses in a very natural sounding human voice was really unnerving <laughs> but yeah we're getting to a we're getting to a point with the pace that things are moving that you could very easily see a replication of human experience for things like call centers and any sort of customer service type activity that are pretty much indistinguishable from a human uh, interaction and that is really quite scary it's actually quite interesting because i think maybe like Two or three years ago, Google showed off, I think it was called Google Duplex, where they had it on stage, like the like model was using like a text-to-speech ring and it rang up some, I think it was like a hairdresser to book an appointment. And after this, people were like, oh, no, you, you can't do that. You can't have this and it not tell the, the hairdresser that it's an AI and it's just pretending to be human. Uh, but now this GPT voice and chat and image thing everyone's like oh wow this is great i really really want this and it's just like a complete perspective change in the last few years you know the the ramifications when you look in this sort of multimodal uh, format are absolutely huge i mean in at least in in principle you've basically just witnessed what will 
completely transform every contact center globally. And, you know, that is a, a, a multi-billion pound industry that just witnessed the start of its death, <laughs> which is probably not a very nice way of putting it. But uh, at the same time, it, it's very much true. So the question in terms of adoption becomes less of a technology challenge and more of a cultural and acceptance challenge within targeted industries. I'm quite surprised, if I'm completely honest, given the geopolitical challenges that these large language models will pose to national governments that we've not heard of more nationally sort of directed initiatives coming out of the UK government in particular, but obviously other national governments. If this technology is going to fundamentally transform the productivity of the national workforce over the next decade, you would want something so strategically important probably to be developed and operated on your own shores. Lexi, given your extensive and illustrious background in uh, academia, do you think the UK government should be pushing, seeding the development of competitive large language models akin to GBT, Llama, Claude and, 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 and the rest, developed by either UK-based businesses or public-private type of partnerships, um, but effectively being control and, be, and having an, an aspect of control over large language models to safeguard the future of UK industry. Yes, I mean, it, it's becoming a fundamental technology underpinning a lot of businesses. So the approach until now has been to try to regulate AI for particular narrow applications. So, for instance, if you're predicting the um, amount that you should be lending to somebody who's applied for a loan, for instance, that would be an application which could be regulated. For a large language model, it's really hard because they can do many different tasks, uh, many more tasks than we can even think about. So it's really hard to know what a language model is going to be deployed for in the end when it's such a general purpose model. So this approach of regulating AI for very narrow focused tasks actually doesn't work well at all in the new era of generative AI. I mean, I don't know if you have any observations on that, Ben, but if, you know, in terms of, if you think the, the current approach from the UK government is to make industry regulators responsible for the regulation of AI adoption. So effectively, it's the FCA that are responsible for the adoption of AI for the financial services industry. That is a really hard task. Yeah, I know that the, there was a um, the UK's AI Foundation Model Task Force. You know, like we both said before, all this stuff is moving so fast for any type of regulation to even be relevant. I mean, you kind of look at these things now and then look at them in a year's time. I think they'll just be miles ahead of where they are. And I don't think any regulation you put will be even relevant anymore. So let's take a little look to the future then. If, you, if you're going to pick one or two sort of trends that you're starting to see the green shoots of, what's going to surprise us in the next 12 months? I think it's just going to be the continual improvement of these these smaller large language models that you can run locally. I mean, they've been, the, even the jump from Llama 1, which I think was February, to Llama 2, which was maybe about a month ago, to, like we said before, Mistral, uh, making huge leaps. And I think also stability 
AI, which are the people behind Stable Diffusion, they actually today released a, I think it was about 3 billion parameter large language model, which I think is now small enough to run on your phone locally. And I think these are just going to get better and better. Will we ever see one that's like GPT-4 level quality? Maybe within the next year. What are the practical implications of higher performing, smaller language models? The main downside is the cost of inference. You need a, you know, a large amount of compute to actually run these things at like reasonable speeds. If you can get one of these large languages to run locally on say your, your Mac or your phone, then you can, you know, this kind of opens the door as these being more like digital assistants that you can use wherever and whenever you want. Uh, which I think are like one of the main kind of use cases for these that shows some promise. If I'm a medium to large size organization with a bit of money to spend and I could buy effectively a high performing, smaller, large language model that's effectively trained for the type of output that I need it to perform. I would be thinking as an executive of that business, well, if I can literally purchase that large language model, I can deploy it locally. So I've got, I, I remove what is not, not a small risk around the transition of data. And I can effectively experiment easily, as you pointed out, but effectively adapt that large language model under my ownership to my data set, my clients. That sounds really appealing versus paying a token round trips to you know, GPT or OpenAI, Microsoft, wherever. I 100% agree, but it does require a deep understanding of the the levers that you have available to to play with, and it requires a certain amount of desire to you know dig under the hood and and experiment with how how to pull these levers. You'll probably seen in the press over the last few weeks numerous different organisations, people, individuals are bringing lawsuits against OpenAI effectively claiming copyright infringement based on the fact that you can now generate what effectively is based on their copyrighted uh, information. The result of these lawsuits is going to be fascinating for the future of this industry. I think this is probably quite an understated risk at the moment. Lexi, you've obviously been heavily involved in this space for a while, working under real restrictions with organizations like the BBC uh, and others in terms of the data that you can and can't use. Are you surprised at all that companies like OpenAI well, managed to just sort of get away with what they're doing? I mean, Google's been doing it for many years. They've been digitizing entire libraries, back catalogs, thousands or millions of books. Until recently, so for, for machine translation, where you training models on translations that you you can find on the internet it seemed like there was no harm done because you know you would scrape a hotel's website and the hotel is translated into say english spanish and german or something and the hotel has no material harm from using their data to train a translation model in fact maybe the hotel even uses your translation model to help them understand their customers and and you know the net benefit for everyone outweighs taking the data um you know, there's sort of layers of web crawling and web scraping and processing of data some of them seem perfectly fine and others maybe have overstepped i think that there there should be a way for us to use 
only data that's not copyrighted and know where the, the provenance of the data came from. But I think copyright is a very important issue. And in the future, people will have to report what data they train their models on, and it will have to be legal. I think GPT now have a way to explicitly block their crawler from crawling your website. And I read an article that was something like 25% of the top 100 websites now have this thing blocking OpenAI crawling their websites. Also related to earlier this year where Reddit started charging significantly more money to use their API because these companies just don't want these other companies like using their data and not paying for it. Data is very valuable. The BBC's data is very valuable. Reddit's data is very valuable. I mean, Twitter always knew that its data was very valuable. OpenAI seem to be the experts at this though, don't they? They do the do, so we'll crawl every website, take all the data, and then after they're finished, they'll go, now we've introduced something uh, that can identify the robot or text. Yeah, you know? it's like the, what's the saying? It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. They just kind of brute force their way to the top and then they're like, oh, actually, this this stuff should be regulated and you guys can't make models as big as ours. It's a, a very good tactic. For a, a non-profit business whose yeah, yeah. founding values were to make AI open and accessible to everyone for free. But they do make very good products, so... Yeah, you can't complain. Yeah. So, I think that's all we've got time for today. Um, Lexi, Ben, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. Take care.